Hey listeners, it's your host Aisha. So, full disclosure, when we recorded this interview with author Blair Tyndall, we knew that she was shopping for a dress for the Golden Globes, but what we didn't know, because, sorry to disappoint, we aren't psychic, was that her show, Mozart in the Jungle, would win the Golden Globe for Best TV Comedy or Musical, and that Gael Garcia Bernal, who plays the main character in the show, would win for Best Actor in a TV Comedy or Musical. So, we want to take a moment to say, congrats! I hope you enjoy my conversation with Blair as much as I did. She was a really fun lady to talk to. And uh, P.S., if you do enjoy this and you enjoy what we do on Classical Classroom, make sure to subscribe to us and to rate us and review us on iTunes. Every rating gets us closer to winning. On a sadder note, uh, we found out that David Bowie passed away last night. And we just wanted to take a second to press our space faces close to his and say thank you and good night. Enjoy the episode. I'm Daisha Clay, host of The Classical Classroom, a show where experts teach me about classical music. I used to know very little about classical music, and now I'd like to think that I know slightly more than very little. What I have learned is that classical music isn't the obscure, static art form that I thought that it was. In fact, it's a dynamic force that's doing amazing things in the world right now. Welcome to a Classical Classroom sub-series, Music Works. We'll go behind the scenes at concerts, hear amazing artist stories, and look at all the ways that classical music is working in the world today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a Classical Classroom Music Works episode. I'm Daisha Clay, and here with me today, all the way from NPR in Culver City, is Blair Tyndall. Blair is an oboist who has played with the New York Philharmonic, the Orpheus Chamber Orchestra, and the San Francisco Symphony, among others. Uh, she went to school at Columbia, Stanford, and the Manhattan School of Music. She's also a journalist who's written for publications like the New York and the Los Angeles Times. But you might know her best as the author of Mozart in the Jungle, uh, the memoir she wrote about her experiences in the classical music world, which has been adapted by Roman Coppola, Jason Schwartzman, and Alex Timbers into a series for Amazon that stars Gael Garcia Bernal, among others. Uh, the second season of Mozart in the Jungle has just been released on Amazon Prime. Blair Tyndall, welcome to the Classical Classroom. Thank you so much for having me. So let's get right into it. Tell us about your career as a, as a young musician and what made you want to write this. Uh, well, I had, nev- I had never thought of writing something like this, but I went back to school uh-huh. when I was him 39 so that was of course uh three years before now (laughs) (laughs) totally anyway so in my first journalism class they asked us to write a story about something that had affected us emotionally Mm -hmm. so i wrote this story about my dear friend samuel sanders and he was a piano accompanist probably the person who made piano accompanying a thing that you could actually do for a living Mm -hmm. And he had just died three weeks before, 
And I wanted to mm-hmm. talk about there were people who supported him and people who just abandoned him. Mm-hmm. And it was a, a horrible story, but it's the same story that you would see in any field. It's not particular to music. Mm-hmm. So I was selected to read, you know, apparently I was the whitest diversity candidate they'd ever had in the Stanford journalism <laughs> program. Because <laughs> I guess because I was older and a, a lot older and a... Uh, classical musician that made me diverse. (laughs) And so, (laughs) anyway, I read the story, and I had never written before. I'd really never written before. I've only been to music school at this point. Mm -hmm. And the class was silent, and they're all the next youngest person to me was 13 years younger. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, my goodness, what did I do? (laughs) I just gave up my really well-paying career on Broadway. And I thought, oh boy, I made a mistake. And then finally, like, it seemed like an eternity passed. It was probably only like 15 seconds. But (laughs) someone finally said, you have to write a book about this. And I thought, well, yeah, and then I'll never make a living. (laughs) So so I I waited a while. And and I felt like this was something that people really needed to know about. People just don't know that they like classical music. I think they know now. <laughs> yeah. And I don't think that we're seen as real people. Mm-hmm. So I think the show has changed all of that, and I'm really, really excited about that. Well, th- that's that's what I, I was going to ask next, actually. Like, what, besides your, your friend's death, which I'm sorry to hear about, what made you think that this was a story, that this story of the classical music world needed to be told? Well, I didn't think it was a story. I mean, it's been my life since birth, pretty much. So I thought, what could be so interesting about that? <laughs> but the reaction of my young friends in this journalism program told me otherwise. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people either read or don't read reviews, but I read reviews of the show because yeah. apparently I can't help myself. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing that I love the most is every day several re- viewer reviews pop up where somebody says... I hate classical music, but now I love it. <laughs> I didn't know I liked it, so I'm going to get tickets to the symphony. Well, the, uh, so that that's great. You, know, you you bring up something really interesting because you you're thinking that you weren't thinking that this was a story that that needed to be told. This was just your life, and and in doing this show, you know, classical music was not my world at all. But in in meeting so many of the people on this show. I've found that, just like you, their whole lives have just been steeped in this music. They kind of just grew up in it. It's not like other forms of music that you might stumble upon and get interested in, like, trance or something. You know, it's like a, it's a whole world. And well, it can be trance yeah. if you watch the show. Yeah, yeah, that's true, that's true. <laughs> but, but, like, tell us a little bit about yourself. Like, um, like, like what did your parents do how how did you start being a classical musician, that kind of thing? Well, my parents had me very late, so I have one surviving parent. She's almost 95, and of course I'm only 23. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Just kidding. Yeah. But uh, my dad was an academic. He was a history professor, and he got a Fulbright scholarship, a uh, Fulbright grant, rather, to uh, teach English mm-hmm. and history in Vienna. So I lived briefly in Vienna when I was a child and was exposed to all of this wonderful stuff, which is in the book. Mm -hmm. And then we're from the South. I'm Southern. 
-hmm. And my parents were uh, the type of people who, you know, at the time in the 30s and 40s, learned to play the piano and sing in choir and things like that, just casual things having to do with classical music. So that's the way I was raised. And then all of a sudden in my lifetime, it became clear that people could now be professional musicians. Mm -hmm. So they thought this I was obviously doing pretty well in this department. And so they sent me out and that's kind of what happened. Yeah. I was at the cutting edge of this whole new movement. The and the new the new movement being that you could actually make a career of Yeah. Working I think in this the, world. the thing that made me decide to write the book was that I I found out that the first time there was a full-time uh, symphony orchestra in the United States was 1964, wow. and it was the New York Philharmonic. Wow. And everybody thinks that there were full-time orchestras for a couple of centuries or something. It's just mm-hmm. not true. So it's it's within my lifetime that that happened. That is fascinating. I, I had no I, I idea. So. <laughs> Me <Man>. neither. <laughs> yeah, and, and and in the in the book you talk kind of both about the evolution of, of the classical music world and, and about your personal experiences in it. So can you give uh, <laughs> a very brief overview of the evolution of the classical music world? Oh, sure. I think it started in 1956, um, through, uh, four years before I was born. Mm-hmm. And at that point, it became something that people were interested in. It was like a Cold War race. Mm-hmm. We were ahead, actually, in everything from Russia, mm-hmm. except for uh, the arts. And so mm-hmm. someone came up with the idea that we should have matching grants and raise all this money for the arts, and we could compete with Russia. So that's what we did. Mm-hmm. It just escalated, yeah. and it did really well until the late 1980s. And at that point, their matching grants wound down, so there wasn't as much money anymore. Yeah. And at that point, I could see that our world was not quite as rich as it once was. Mm-hmm. And that's when I decided to get out and go to journalism school and do both things. Well, that's a great segue. So, so talk a little bit about what, you, what your experience as a musician in that world was like. I was very fortunate. I was in the right place at the right time. And I always was able to make a living as a musician when I saw that things were probably not going that well in the music world. I decided to take a Broadway show and also do a sort of my, you know, big career fun thing, which was I gave a Carnegie Recital Hall uh, solo debut recital. Mm -hmm. So I took a series of uh, Broadway shows, which was a really wonderful experience. It's great employment for classical musicians and pop musicians too. Uh-huh. And you're, when um, you do these, just because I'm totally ignorant of this stuff, you're, you're like sitting in the pit performing the music. Right. The so okay. when you go see a, a Broadway show, or even if you see a national tour or someplace like um, Houston yeah, or here yeah. in Los Angeles, it's the people sitting in the pit. Okay. Okay. For the most part, occasionally yeah. they'll be on stage, but. You get extra for yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're there you're doing these Broadway shows? So it went really well. Uh, but I was thinking after 10 years of this, do I want to be doing this when I'm 60? Uh-huh. So I thought, uh, let's just branch out and see what else is out there. I took some aptitude testing from a company called the Johnson O'Connor Research Foundation. Uh-huh. 
And it it measures not what you think you're good at, because I have no idea what I'm good at. (laughs) (laughs) Most musicians don't, because we've been doing this since we were, you know, walking. Mm -hmm. So I I was certain I knew what I was good at. And I went and took this series of tests, and uh, I was wrong about everything I thought I was good at. (laughs) And they, (laughs) they they thought that perhaps I should try a bunch of different things, either doing music in a different way, mm-hmm. like uh, composing or conducting, or one of the things I suggested was journalism. Mm-hmm. So off I went to journalism school. I think that's so interesting that you kind of got out of the classical music world because you saw things going south a bit. And then you jumped into journalism, of all things, which... Yeah, talk about two high-earning careers. <laughs> Right? You were like (laughs) out of the frying pan into the fire. But it worked out, didn't it? Yeah, it did. It did. I'm interested in, in like um, some of the stuff that you talk about in the book and 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 that is kind of addressed in the show, which I'm guessing was your time with the New York Phil, right? The the um Well, I was only a substitute in the okay. Philharmonic. Okay. But but a pretty frequent one. Yeah. Give give us a, a story, an example of of some of what you experienced as as a musician that kind of led you to believe that things weren't going well. Just personally, not necessarily organizationally, but like what did you experience? Oh, I knew it from the beginning. Yeah. Um I actually have been a member of the musicians union since I was Fourteen, mm-hmm. And so I got the musician's paper, and I remember sitting in my dorm room in high school looking at this and just, like, there are no jobs for oboe players. <laughs> so you've got to be fairly entrepreneurial, which is honestly what I did with the show. Yeah. And I didn't just write the book blindly and think, oh, maybe it'll be a TV show. Mm-hmm. No, I really wrote it trying to aim it at people who might be interested in making a TV show about something new. Ah, Okay. Okay. So I think you have to think that way if you go into classical music mm-hmm. or dance or drama or anything. Mm-hmm. And I think so many people are are thinking that way now. You said you wrote it purposefully with the idea of of making it into a TV story, but did someone approach you? Did you approach them? How did that transpire? No, it happened faster than I wanted it to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought I was going to, like, move to Los Angeles and be like, a, I'm going to be a movie mogul and, yeah. like, approach all these people. I've got this calling card. <laughs> oh, no. I arrived, and, like, 12 hours later, um, Jason had contacted my this Jason agent. Schwartzman. Jason Schwartzman. Yeah. So this has been 10 years in the making. Okay. Okay, um, I see. Yeah, it just happened... So I had taken myself and paid for it myself on a book tour and gone around and talked to people at independent bookstores where all the music festivals are in the summertime. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot of publicity. I had a, the people at the publishing house who are very, very helpful, mm-hmm. uh, Grove Atlantic, were saying, wow, you've got, you know, for such an unpromising book. <laughs> they didn't say that, but <laughs> this is kind of a fat publicity file. So it, we had reviews very early on in the New York Times, and nice. I think what Jason saw was possibly an Entertainment Weekly. Mm-hmm. So he picked up on that and contacted my agent, and 
there we went. But okay. that was 10 years ago. And, and you then, were like, where have you been? I've been waiting for you. I've been waiting for you, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> you and your, and your amazingly thick beard. <laughs> that guy has got some serious beard growing qualities. <laughs> he, he does. I, I love him. He's one of my favorites, but yeah. I had seen him uh, like two weeks apart, and he had a clean-shaven face one day, uh-huh. and then two weeks later he had this unbelievable beard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's like ZZ Top level after two weeks, I bet. <laughs> yes. yes. I feel like as a viewer, the, like, the show is kind of aimed at exploding preconceived notions of what the classical music world is, uh, that, that you seem to take issue with this reputation that classical music has as this staid thing that's sort of to be revered and respected. And I'm wondering why that is, and, and, and what do you think would make it better? I'm wondering why that is, too. <laughs> Just looking at it from the inside out. Uh-huh. Um, what? Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're just people like anybody else. We're yeah. the same cross-section of society. So I, I am not sure where that came from. And from the, from the beginning, 10 years ago when the book came out, people were saying, oh, classical music is such a noble profession. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, well, if you actually are able to devote yourself to anything, it's a noble profession, but why would we be any different from anybody else? And, you know, of course, I have a lot of respect for the members of what I call my tribe, mm-hmm. and they do have a lot of discipline and devote themselves. And I'm most of the reason I wrote the book was I wanted to celebrate exactly that. And, you know, we're kind of an unrecognized little bit of society, and people mm-hmm. think we're walking around and Ascot ties and smoking jackets and <laughs> Trump Tower. We are not. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, this whole time I've been imagining that you were wearing an ascot, so that's uh, mind blown. <laughs> I'm wearing a jacket I got at Walmart for $19. <laughs> yeah, that, no, um, that's, that's, that's interesting. You know, it, 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 but it's, there's no real reason for people to have this belief that classical music is somehow set apart from other kinds of music. But that, I think that's what's turned people off to it for a long time. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I hope Roman doesn't kill me for saying this story. But it's Roman so Coppola. I, yes, Roman yeah. Coppola. Yeah. Never thought I'd say that since. But <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Old Roman, yeah. Oh, good old back. Roman. Yeah. <laughs> no, he's he's a sweetheart and he's so talented. But um, you know, he's very steeped in this. He has many relatives who are classical musicians. And I think mm-hmm. also East Coast and West Coast um impressions of classical music are extremely different. Huh. I've at least found that. But anyway, so we were at the concert where they did the funny episode one where Dudamel actually plays a stagehand. Oh, yeah. That was so funny. Oh it was God. great. And I was there. <laughs> and he ad-libbed a lot of it. And the, the funniest thing is he just, I mean, it can't be a spoiler alert now because the show is out. Mm-hmm. But um, Dudamel is talking to Gael as if Gael is Dudamel. Uh-huh. And he says, um, you have to come conduct our orchestra. We hate our conductor. 
<laughs> and he just ad-libbed that. It was so funny. That's awesome. But I was I was sitting in a box watching the show and watching them tape the show, and I think this was a, a very unusual thing for Hollywood because it's a concert situation like we're used to, but mm-hmm. because I was I'm actually in the show and I got so now I know how that works. Um, they take multiple shots of things. In yeah. this case, they only had one chance. So they sent him out on stage, and I'm sitting in the box with Roman and the producer. And I have no problem with people clapping in between movements. Actually, I really love it. But I'm just mm-hmm. so trained from so long to not do it. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm not clapping between movements. Everybody else is. I'm loving it. And Roman is looking at me like... Oh my gosh, she's not clapping. Should I not clap? What should I do? <laughs> no, clap, please. <laughs> That's great. So it's I, I hope this the show has made it much more of a thing where people feel like they can go to a concert and clap uh-huh. between movements because I we all everybody on stage loves that. You know, we love applause. Do, do you think that and and I'm wondering if if part of why the classical music world tends to maintain this rarefied air about it. Do you think that that comes from within a little bit? Or is it just a throwback? You know, is it is it something that people just sort of superimpose upon the classical music world because it's a, it's a kind of music that is not that well known? You know, it's, it's separated from popular music, unfortunately, um, in people's minds. Do you think it comes from within or from without? Well, it certainly doesn't come from us. I mean, we couldn't care less about what I just was talking about, clapping yeah. between movements. Yeah. But, you know, I talked a lot in my book about how the whole nonprofit structure for performance art started happening at the beginning of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And it was a way for the sort of moneyed set to remove themselves from us working uh-huh. class people. Uh-huh. <laughs> so... I mean, none of us could care less about concert protocol. I'm pretty safe in saying that. Mm-hmm. You know, I I know when I was little and we were living in Vienna, I did learn, you know, to definitely not drink any water before the concert and go to the bathroom before the concert and stay very still so you're not the ugly American. Mm-hmm. But I think it's reached a point that just doesn't make any sense. I mean, people are watching the show. And they listen to the music and they shazam it. Yeah. And they're like, oh, I'm going to buy these pieces. I love yeah. this music. And they didn't know they loved the music. You know, and you don't have to sit, you know, with your spine upright and right. and watch the concert and listen to the concert. You can just enjoy the music at your leisure. It, it, it's, it sounds like you're making a distinction between the musicians and and the sort of powers that be in that world. And that the powers that be sort of had a vested interest in, in keeping things separate from the riffraff. Yeah, and I think, you know, I'm from the South, so I, I understand protocol, you know, and following <laughs> the rules and all yeah. of that stuff. So I think there is a certain, not that it developed in the South, but I think in, you know, polite society, that was a, a big thing for a while. And I don't think it's a big thing now. Mm-hmm. And I think that the symphony community would do well to drop that at this point because we need money Mm -hmm. (laughs) and most of our money now is going to come from younger people who are interested in technology and such Um, so let's cater to them yes 
I agree. And 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 it's it's more than that, though, I think. I, I did sort of an audio essay for one of our shows about having a very negative experience at a couple of classical music events and how it what did. What happened? Well, I, I, I went to um, a couple of concerts back-to-back. One was a rock concert. One was a classical music concert. And I went to the rock concert, just had a bananas time just jumping up and down and you know having fun and then I went to this classical music concert that I was actually really excited about and uh I knew just through the show and through working at the station I knew just a ton of people who were there no one talked to me through the entire thing there was a very see and be seen sort of um Think attitude going on before and after the show. People people seem to be very concerned with exactly. wearing the right clothes and being seen by the right people. And I was not the right people, apparently. <laughs> so I'm not the right people either. It, you know, I, and I and I, you know, I talked to people about my experience because I didn't want I, I didn't I wanted to make sure I wasn't just being hypersensitive. And and you know, there were some substantive. Things, some actual things that that took place that led me to believe that no, this was just there was a very different atmosphere for this particular event, and I was like, yeah, that sucks. No wonder people don't want to come to classical music concerts. <laughs> well, that's not the, the reason is classical music is a nonprofit. You can't even call it an industry, but it's a nonprofit thing. Yeah, and rock concerts are definitely for profit. Yeah, so they're trying to drum up the audience, whereas the nonprofit arena they are trying to raise money from the wealthier folk and uh-huh. believe me i appreciate them very much uh-huh. um, so it's just a whole different dynamic and yeah. i think something's got to change pretty soon that's an interesting observation that it kind of comes from the the, the sourcing of the the money like where does the money for these two things come from and that that's yeah well one one comes from from the riffraff the money comes from the riffraff so the riffraff is important <laughs> huh, I hadn't really thought about that. Well, um, to look at things in a more positive light, what this show is doing for classical music is so cool because it's like it's juxtaposing. Like just last night, I was watching the episode where all of the uh, conductors get in a fight at the end. That's my absolute favorite scene. <laughs> oh so my god, awesome. that is so funny. So it's this this scene where they're they're actually making a conducting video game, and so they've got all of these actual conductors in a room, and they're all dressed up in. Um, these Tight little, unitards. Yeah, unitards with these little, you know, balls on them against a green screen, and they all they all get into a scuffle, and they start playing Mars by holes from the planet. And they they timed it <laughs> so well, so it's the God of War. Oh, know, it's so great! <laughs> it's such an awesome moment. And then there, and then there are all these moments where you've got like Long Long playing ping pong with Joshua Bell. That was um, hysterical. And they have this whole like <laughs> night out on the town with like some of the main characters in the show. And well, it just, I was there that day on the oh, set, yeah? and it was just so. I've got a picture, and I couldn't post it before, but it's got all the trailers uh-huh. that have. Uh, you know, they they only use the last initial, so you know if it's Emmanuel Axe, it just says Emmanuel A. Uh-huh. 
And he was actually pretty much the star of the show as far as I'm concerned. Right. He was so funny. But so it said, long L. <laughs> but long I, I walked L. by and I, I had played with him when I was at Stanford and playing in the San Francisco Symphony uh-huh. as a sub. Um, I don't think he remembered, but I, I walked by and said, long, long, it's Larry. You know, I wrote the book. He was so incredibly friendly and yeah. nice. And um, they all were. Mm-hmm. You know, they were really good sports about it. Yeah. They seem they seem like they were having a great time at least. <laughs> it was it was I a love little hot that day paddle. and a little cramped, but yeah. everybody, you know, had a good attitude. Um well, do you okay, and so now you're a consultant on the show and you we talked before and you said that you you're actually on the set. Um wh- I'm what in is, the show. You and you're and you're in the show too. So, so what is uh, when when you're not actually acting in the show? What does that mean that you're doing as a consultant? Oh, just if they uh, mostly, I try to stay out of the way. <laughs> they know what they're doing. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I don't try to pretend like I do. But if they have a music specific question, and there there are some like you know when the orchestra comes out on stage, what is the protocol? Mm-hmm. Or my absolute favorite was if you drop an oboe, does it roll? So. <laughs> We had an experiment there. It does not. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> and by the way, I'm renting an oboe at the moment from a very good oboe, but uh, I didn't use that one. Ah, just that's in good. case they're listening. <laughs> I have an old plastic oboe, so that's good in case there are oboists out there concerned. Do you feel like they have maintained the spirit of the book in the in the show? To a surprising degree. Okay. I was expecting it to get very cheesy and kind of cheap. Mm-hmm. But then I found out it was the Coppola family, so couldn't be that cheesy or cheap. Mm-hmm. And it has not been that that way at all. Yeah. I've been really, really happy with what they've done. Yeah. The thing that, that most meant the most to me was they really picked up, the book was really about the rise of the performing arts in late 20th century America, mm-hmm. and also a lot about the just labor and administration of orchestras, which I've written about for the New York Times. And they really got that, and they really took off with it. So I, I'm happy about that. And I, I did advise them a lot on what was happening last year. It was a really bad year. It's sort of a cyclical thing. Mm-hmm. With classical music, a lot of orchestras went on strike or got locked out. So they sort of used the Minnesota Orchestra as a an example of how that works and how that happens, and I think they were pretty accurate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in addition to sort of capturing this idea of classical musicians and and people involved in that world as actual three-dimensional human beings and not these sort of austere <laughs> beings that, that just appear on a stage, uh, it, they also go into on the show a lot about the legal things that go on behind the scenes, the uh, unions and the the struggle for maintaining artistic rights and and things like that, which is which is an interesting aspect. I well, think. also the, I mean, just in my experience as a you know I'm I'm treading on thin ice here, but in my experience as a trained journalist who's written for major newspapers and also a regular old musician, a lot of journalists who are not ethical, and most are, but the few who aren't, can try to make uh, musicians look as if we are the, you know, Cuban cigar puffing 
ascot wearing people in Trump Tower. Right. And that does happen in the show. And they, you know, they really caught all of this stuff. And huh. I'm very happy about that. Yeah, it's very, it's, it is a, a, a nuanced look into this world, which I think is, is great. I love that it's sort of, through through the story of the main characters, you're sort of sucked in. And then along the way, you're sort of experiencing all of these different aspects of the classical music world and seeing these people as human beings. I, I, I think it's very cool, and I love what you guys are doing. Well, one very poignant thing that I, I think most people didn't catch, and actually even the musicians at my viewing party didn't catch, of course there may have been alcohol involved, <laughs> um, was that um, in episode three, mm-hmm. you have this portrait of an elderly man who is like a uh, famous oboe virtuoso well that elderly man is anton coppola who's uh the great uncle of roman coppola and also uh, jason schwartzman Mm -hmm. and he was he was actually at the premiere i met him he was he's 99 years old wow and he was bounding around like he was 30 (laughs) wow wow it was very meaningful because i could see jason was getting he's in the scene Jason plays sort of a version of Alex Ross, who is the oh, right. wonderful music critic for The New Yorker. Mm-hmm. And Jason was sort of tearing up because it's, you know, he's 99 and he's telling these wonderful stories. Yeah. So I hope any oboist will, or person who loves classical music will take a second look at that one. Yeah. My, uh, my, my final question to you, and it's an important one, is, is Gael Garcia Bernal as small as I think he is? Uh. <laughs> I mean, he's 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 like beautiful and like this really talented actor. But when I see him next to the other people, he seems pound very for pound, wee. he packs a punch, right? <laughs> yeah, well, that's a, that's a diplomatic <laughs> way to answer. And is there going to be a season three? Do you know? Well, it was it was kind of cryptically announced okay. yesterday. Uh, I would assume because this has been quite successful, but you you never know. Yeah. I mean, anything could happen. Okay. All right. Well, I, I really appreciate you coming on to the Classical Classroom, Blair. This has been a really engaging discussion, and, and I can't wait to watch the rest of season two. All right, everybody, that does it for this episode of Classical Classroom Music Works. For more Classroom, go to houstonpublicmedia.org classroom. You can follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, SoundCloud, YouTube, iTunes. And uh, when you're on iTunes, remember to rate and review us because it is super cool. You can email me at dclay at houstonpublicmedia.org. Thanks today to audio producer Todd BB Todd Holslander for making us sound good. Thanks to program director Sinjin Flynn for not sending us to the Sarlacc this week. Thanks to editor Mark DeClaudio for his piercing Sith eyes. Thanks to Blair Tyndall for being here today all the way from NPR in Culver City. Thanks to composer George Heathco for the theme music to Music Works. Thanks to me for saying words, but most of all, thanks to you for listening. We'll catch you next time.